0: Soccer might not be the most dangerous sport in the world, but being a soccer referee is quickly becoming one of the most treacherous, even deadly, occupations. A month ago, or several months ago, excuse me, in the state of Utah, a game went sideways really quickly. A player took a routine corner kick, and as the group of players was anxiously awaiting its arrival, one of them was in a position to head the ball into the goal. But as he was about to do so, the goalie himself came out and pushed him out of the way, hindered him from being able to do it. So the goalie, or the referee, saw this and made the call and gave the guy a yellow card. Well, the goalie was furious at this call, and so he approached the referee and he punched him in the face. And a week later, due to severe brain swelling, the referee died. Now, amazingly, this isn't an isolated incident. This apparently happens relatively regularly in soccer. A month earlier, in a different part of the world, a coach, you know, the calm and collected, mature one of the group, was really angry with the call, and so he chased a referee around the field until he finally caught him and began to choke him. The passions are running high at these soccer matches. One more grisly example. In June, a player and a referee got into a heated argument over the call. The ref had called a red card on this guy. He needed to leave the game. But instead of leaving the game, this angry player started a fist fight with the referee. Now at some point in the midst of this scuttlebutt, the referee pulls out a knife and stabs the player. The stadium erupts. These people and the spectators in the stands are watching this, and as they see it unfold, this horrendous display, they storm the field to deal with the referee. He didn't leave alive. He didn't leave in one piece. Players, coaches, referees, spectators, these are some angry people. And this is only one sport of many and one area of life of many scan our music, our newspapers, our movies, and you'll quickly be convinced that we are an angry group of people in the midst of a very angry world. Now thankfully, we here can all write that off as extreme, right? Because it's extreme. We would never act that way at a major sporting event or at our kids' sporting events, dads, or at home in private, right? We would never do that. Only really angry people do awful things like that. Jesus made the point that the angry murderer and the person who hasn't murdered yet but is very angry inside are in the same boat at the judgment because both of them have a problem in the heart. Their hearts are bad. So how do we address the anger in our hearts? We need to learn to deal with the angry person who looks us in the mirror each day. Now, you and I are both excited to hear that this is the last message in our series, The Seven Deadly Sins and Their Cure. In order, we've been looking at these different sins, and so far we've covered lust, gluttony, greed, pride, sloth, and envy. And the seventh deadly sin is wrath. And we're going to get right to work in our scripture passage, so make your way to Ephesians 4 in your Bible. Or you can turn your attention to the screen and follow along there. We'll be starting in Ephesians 4, verse 26. And as you're making your way there and you're taking out your weekly welcome to take some notes, I want to say a few things contextually so that we can read this passage carefully together. Paul has been writing about the changes that should come into our lives when we become followers of Jesus. And he employs the analogy of changing clothes. We're to take off our old, dirty clothes and put on new, clean clothes in Jesus. In other words, Paul is working toward the same purpose that we've been working toward in this series. We should get rid of our old sinful practices and habits. Those are vices. And instead, we should put on new practices and habits. These are virtues that please Jesus. Now specifically in these verses, this section, Paul is concerned with virtues that will produce relational unity and harmony in our relationships. And so in this brief list format, he hits several things. Lying and stealing And anger, and finally, swearing. In the first half of verse 26, he says this about anger. Paul writes, In your anger, do not sin. In your anger, do not sin. Now, There are, according to this verse, two different kinds of anger, right? Sinful anger and non-sinful anger, or in more familiar terms, unrighteous anger and righteous anger. Paul's interest, and ours today, is in sinful or unrighteous anger, also known as wrath. And his purpose in this passage is to prevent wrath. He encourages righteous anger on the one hand, but he also knows that it quickly devolves into wrath. And so he hastily adds a command that we're not to sin in our anger, and then he gives us some helpful ways to not do that. But before we look at some of those helpful ways, it would, it would help probably to know what we're talking about and where we normally aim our anger. And so let me give you a definition of wrath. Write this down if you're taking notes. Wrath is a reaction to a perceived injustice. Wrath is a reaction to a perceived injustice, and that injustice is often that we didn't get what we wanted. I didn't get what I want, and now I'm mad. The American Psychological Association says the underlying message of highly angry people is that things should go my way. Should go my way. The New Testament author James beat them to the punch some time ago saying this in James 4 verse 2, you desire but do not have so you kill, you covet but you cannot get what you want so you quarrel and you fight. Now doesn't that just about sum up the causes for wrath? It does for me. My selfishness is the reason that I get angry. If I'm angry, it's because I didn't get what I want. What do you get angry about? What things really get you mad? I came up with a top 11 list of things that produce wrath in us. I'm guessing something on this list really irks you. Take some, take some notes if you want to. Number 11, the weather. We live in the Midwest near Chicago, and so if you plan to do anything any time of the year, you might get snowed out, right? Ridiculous. The weather, number 11. Number 10, your boss. Your boss might make you really angry. Let me clarify one thing that's your boss, never my boss, right? <laughs> right. Number nine, coworkers. Spend a lot of time with these people. Bad breath in the morning is reason enough to get angry at some of your coworkers. Number eight, God. You've had it rough, and it's God's fault. Numbers seven, six, five, and four they all go together spouses, siblings, parents, and kids. These are the people who get the brunt of most of our anger directed at them. Number three, drivers. Now, I wonder how many of you were a little road rage ish on your way into church today or will be on your way out. Number two, technology. Hand a smartphone to a person over 60 years old and just watch the hornet's nest get going, right? Just angry, angry. And then number one, customer service representatives. Now these people get throttled, rough. What do you, what do you get angry about? You know, maybe it's something on that list, maybe it's something else entirely, but I encourage you, To lock on to something that you get angry about so that you're able to personalize this, but also so you've got something to work on when you leave here today. You know, wrath comes in many forms and many personalities. Most of us think of wrath as a red faced, sort of fist shaking outburst that leaves everybody in its wake, and it certainly is that. But it's also the slow boil, it's quietly complaining. Expressing frustration and irritation and annoyance and aggravation. In this form, it looks moody and often expresses itself by being passive-aggressive. I'm prone to the second one. Which one are you prone to? Uh, How do you normally get angry? You know, in the first instance, people want to get out of the way of an explosive anger because they don't want to get hit with wrath shrapnel. In the second instance, people kind of want to get away from getting sucked in because wrath becomes contagious, pulls us into the wrath vortex, and we don't want to get grumpy ourselves. But in both cases, the reactions of wrath are sinful and destructive. We need new reactions. And Paul gives us four. I want to recommend that we take the physiological momentum of anger, the heart-beating adrenaline rush of it, and channel it to react differently when we get mad. Remember that in this chapter, Paul is talking about new life in Christ, a new family in Christ, a new being as a newly created people. And as as such, we need new reactions. So here are four reactions from the passage. I've phrased them in typical angry words so that we can try to turn our wrath against itself, turn it into our ally. The first reactions are all, all three of those are going to be angry reactions, and then the last one is going to be wrath's cure. So four reactions. Number one, be rash. Be rash. One of the ways to let anger run wild in our lives is to let it go unaddressed for an undetermined amount of time. So let's say, for example, that wrath is on the rise in your life because you expected to arrive on time for some meeting that you needed to be to, And in the course of leaving, somebody from work caught you and wanted two minutes to run something by you, and that two minutes quickly became ten minutes. And then as you're driving, the route that you picked happened to have construction. Big surprise. And then when you're getting close, you're just a few minutes away, you're already already going to be pretty late. Then there's traffic due to some car accident. Now the entire time, you've just been fuming as you've been driving. You've been getting more and more frustrated. Your blood pressure is rising. You're sighing every time something else happens. You're hitting the steering wheel. And are you kidding me? every single inconvenience. And so when you get to this meeting, you're brooding in the midst of your frustration. Now, what happens an hour after all of this? Chances are, if the meeting wasn't also wrath-inducing, most of your anger will have dissipated. End of story, right? Not so much. Anger unaddressed becomes anger deferred or reserved for another time. Getting frustrated or angry or filled with wrath because my expectations weren't met, that is, I didn't get what I wanted, affects our hearts over the long haul. I learned then to fume and to forget. Over time, unaddressed points of anger, one thing here and one thing there, produce people of anger. A groove is formed in our character, and we begin to follow that groove until all of those reactions become second nature to us, and now we're just angry people. Paul recognizes that this is our tendency, and so he commands us not to rashly react to anger-producing people and circumstances, but instead to be rash, hasty, or quick in dealing with our anger. Take a look again, the second half now of verse 26. He says, In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Now, why does Paul say it that way? Why does he employ the imagery of the sun? Why does he bring the sun into the discussion at this point? I think the surface reason and the main application of this point is that time doesn't heal all wounds. Instead, it causes them often to settle and to scar. And so as the sun goes down quickly, we need to resolve issues of our hearts, anger issues quickly. Don't wait. But that's not the only reason that Paul brings this imagery in at this point. I think he's got a couple of Old Testament verses rattling around in his head. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 13, a wealthy person loans something to a poor person, and he uses his cloak as collateral. And this is what this verse says. We read this. Return their cloak by sunset so that your neighbor may sleep in it. Then they will thank you and it will be regarded as a righteous act in the sight of the Lord your God. Then two verses later, in Deuteronomy 24, verse 15, some poor folks are working for a wage. And we read, pay them their wages each day before sunset because they are poor and they're counting on it. Otherwise they may cry to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. Now in both of these cases, God's command ensures that the poor person, this recipient, is going to experience relief. A cloak to sleep in in the cold and wages to buy bread at the end of the day. These folks are living a day at a time and so the person with power needs to be gracious to them. They need to help them out and this is going to please God. Now, Paul draws on this gracious command of God to underscore the quickness with which we should be going about resolving anger in our lives. Be rash. But he also does this, catch this, to remind us of the fact that we only live a day at a time, too. And so it's not worth walking around with a sick, angry heart. Be Be quick to deal with situations when wrath is on the rise. Be rash in your reaction because it will relieve your heart. Time gives sin an opportunity to move in, either because we neglect our anger or because we nurse our anger. My guess is that if most of us were to make this our practice, to move in quick and actually try to resolve this thing in my heart right away, that we would recognize that we get angry oftentimes way too easily and at really small things anyway. If you think back to that example that we were just using a minute ago, what would it look like for Paul's command here? It would look like this. While you're driving and you're really, really frustrated, and, and another inconvenient stoplight settles in, and you sit there and you're frustrated, and are you kidding me? To instead just sit there and think, why am I so angry about this? Why am I really so angry? Just to take a moment. Or at the end of the meeting, to take a few minutes to say, I'm going to address the issues of my heart. Because we would most likely recognize in the course of doing that, but most of the things that we're really angry about are kind of petty anyway. It would be quick to deal with the situations when wrath is on the rise in your hearts. Be rash in your reaction because it will relieve your heart. You know, As I was thinking through this point, and I was reflecting on this passage, I went for a walk through the building, as I often do, because I could not get my thoughts to sort out right. So I started spending some time praying about this. And and what I realized was as I was walking around thinking about this whole thing and praying, and most likely as an answer to my prayer, I thought to myself, is it possible that I might have seen something here that I'm going to recommend to our entire church congregation, but not something that I'm doing for myself? And the second that I thought that thought, two people came to my mind that I had been directing wrath toward for some period of time. It's just been baking under the surface. And I hadn't thought of it in these terms, but I realized that I needed to go address this stuff with them. And so I put a drop-dead date on the calendar. Like, I'm going to deal with it by this point. I'm not just going to let this thing continue on forever and ever. And I need to communicate that with my accountability partner so he can help me follow through. Are you angry? Has it been just sitting under the surface, just baking for a long time? Are you angry about something? Keep short accounts with anger. Be rash in dealing with your anger. Number two. Be defensive. Be defensive. On the heels of this first prohibition to be rash, Paul adds another one. To get a running start, I'm going to read verse 26 all the way through verse 27. Paul says, In your anger do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you're angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Now, what do you make of that line? If we let anger run wild in our lives, we'll be giving the devil a foothold? Paul, what are you talking about? Paul is warning us that the devil wants to exploit our angry moments to poison our hearts and ruin our relationships. He wants to let it fester. He wants it to go unaddressed. He doesn't want us to be rash to deal with it quickly at all. And his key strategy for distracting us from dealing with our anger is to just invite us to sit down and talk it through with him. Interestingly, when Paul uses this word, the devil, he's using a different word than he normally uses to refer to this person. He normally calls him Satan. But here he calls him the devil. And it seems like his intention may be to underscore the fact that this devil person is a smooth talker. In fact, some translations of the Bible even translate this as the slanderer or the barker to try to get to this underscoring the nature, the verbal nature of his task. He's speaking to us and he's just feeding us thoughts. He's trying to convince us that we're justified in our anger because, hey, you, you deserved better. Or because you, you needed to blow up. You needed to really let that thing go, right? You needed to really blow off some steam or, or something has been owed to you for a long time. Some people, they have to put up with coworkers. They should put up with coworkers like this. But you, no, you deserve so much better. He even tries to convince us that our anger is justified because God got angry and because Jesus got angry. He forgets to mention the fact that Jesus was self-possessed and in control of his anger, and that our angry outbursts were probably at the inconvenience of our kids in that moment. But whatever, hey, anger is anger. Rash, wraths, rationalizations sound so good coming from his mouth. He wants to convince us of the, the person that you just got into a fight with is just wrong all the time. It couldn't possibly be you. And so we go over this argument over and over in our heads. And we're just astounded that our wife or our husband, our son or our daughter doesn't see the error of their ways. You become convinced that they are just an unreasonable person, period. Period. He wants to convince us that we shouldn't work this thing through. We shouldn't try to resolve it. We should stay isolated. Because the last time that we did that, the last time we actually brought it out into the open, talked about it with somebody, tried to resolve it, they kind of blew it off. They didn't think it was a very big deal anyway. So why would I do that again? He wants to convince us to hang on to our anger because if we didn't, then we wouldn't have the joy of being angry anymore. It's so much more fun to be angry than to deal with it. This is one of the funny things about anger. Now, Ferris said last week of the seven deadly sins that envy isn't very fun and all the other ones are fun. That's certainly the case with wrath. One author of the seven deadly sins says this, Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. Ah, in many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. And the devil couldn't agree more. In his twisted way, he convinces us that anger is good for us. But the problem is, he's lying. Here's the end of that quote. The author says, "The chief drawback is that what you're wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. you know, when wrath rises and rationalization slide out of the devil's mouth, we need to go on the defensive. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul develops this metaphor of battle with the devil even more than right here. His point both there and here is that we need to be aware of the devil's schemes, all of the convincing things that he tries to tell us, and also be aware of our own vulnerabilities. Some time ago I heard about a colonel who teaches at West Point. And this guy would spend time with his recruits, taking them to go and and learn how to do strategic warfare. So he would put on these mock battles. He'd put one group on the defensive. They would be defending this post, and they'd take this other group and say, okay, offensively, you are supposed to go with great force to go take this post over. And if the team defending wasn't capable of doing their job, if they lost the battle, then he would walk them around, and he'd show them every single point where they were vulnerable, right here and right here. The enemy breached your plan right here. Because this colonel knows that if he can show them where their vulnerabilities are, they'll begin to think like the enemy and they'll defend themselves better. We need to do the same thing when the devil starts to speak his convincing justifications for our anger. Once we recognize his schemes, how do we go about defending ourselves against them? Key way to undermine his justifications to short circuit anger is to ask some clarifying questions. You know, wrath is a reaction to a perceived injustice, and so you can ask a couple of vital questions. First, ask, Why am I angry? Why am I angry? We're trying to get to the issue of injustice. Was this truly an injustice, or was this simply a matter of me not getting what I wanted? You know, 99% of his justifications are dismissed immediately because my anger was selfishly motivated. The second question that we can ask is, did I perceive that correctly? It's a perceived injustice. Did I perceive that correctly? Now, this question moves us into the area of investigation. Is that really what he or she meant? Was my assumption accurate? Did I actually perceive that interchange to go down the way that it went? If we don't know the answers to those questions, then we need to actually go have a conversation with that person so that we can understand what actually transpired. What went down? What did you really mean? Be defensive by asking these kinds of questions. The devil wants to exploit our angry moments to poison our hearts and to ruin our relationships. Be defensive. Number three, be aggressive. Be aggressive. Now, for eight years, I was a high school pastor, one of the high school pastors here at Christ Community Church, and I felt like, as a high school pastor, that it was one of my duties to hone my ability to to note cheesy things. Because high school students don't like cheesy things, and so I needed to hone my meter. so whenever we were going to do an event, I didn't want it to be really cheesy, or if I was going to use an illustration, I didn't want it to be super cheesy, or if we were going to name something or brand something, I didn't want it to be really cheesy. What's about to happen is going to be extremely cheesy. And I say that both to warn you and to apologize beforehand, but it's not going to stop me from doing it, okay? When I named this point, be aggressive, this sideline cheer came into my head, and I'm sure you already know what it is, and you might have already started doing it yourself. If you know it, it's be aggressive, be, be aggressive, okay? People do this over and over, and then they spell the whole thing out, it gets a little long, but be aggressive, be, be aggressive. Do you know that one? You're going to do it, okay? Okay. We're just going to do this a few times, three times together, just to get some congregation participation at all of our campuses, all right? So I'm going to point to you, and then we'll do it three times in succession with just a tiny little break in between. I'll point every time that it's ready to go. You ready? All right. One, two, three. Be aggressive. Be, be aggressive. Be aggressive. Be, be aggressive. Be aggressive. Be, be aggressive. Lovely. You guys are fantastic. Easily a 10 on the cheez meter Easily a 10. This is the attitude, being aggressive is the attitude, that Paul wants us to display toward the anger in our lives. Be aggressive. He touches on another topic in verses 28 through 30, and then he comes back to anger again in verse 31. Take a look at what he says, Ephesians 4, verse 31. He says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Now, I noted three observations about this verse. First, highlighting aggressive action, Paul commands us to get rid of anger. This is totally reminiscent of Jesus' instruction on dealing with sin. Whether it's lust or it's anger, Jesus says you need to be aggressive. Be, be aggressive. You need to get drastic. You need to get rid of it. Second observation. Paul says that we're to get rid of all anger in our lives. Our aggressive approach to sin is designed to address all anger. It's supposed to be comprehensive. And then third, and this is the key insight, anger follows a path of escalation. Paul uses six different words to describe anger in this verse, and it seems like each one builds on the previous one. In other words, anger escalates. So bitterness or hard-heartedness leads to an eruption of furious feelings which leads to festering hostility, which leads to angry shouting, which quickly goes to slander. And then finally, in a summary-type word, Paul says malice, which is an intentional decision to plot harm. Anger escalates. We need to be aggressive to root all forms of anger out of our lives by stopping anger's escalation. But how do you stop anger's escalation? In the course of preparing for this message, I talked to several different people asking very intentionally, what do you do to deal with anger in your life? And one guy that I talked to was talking to me about the fact that he recognized that anger, uh, as it's indulged more and more and more, produces more and more anger. In other words, anger escalates. And so he said his goal is to determine how in the heat of the moment to slow it down. So he said he tries to ask himself in those moments, how can I slow down my anger? I need to get this thing relieved. I need to stop the escalation of anger. And he's on to something. In his book, Love and Respect, Emerson Egrich describes our need for a tool that can break us out, that can interrupt us in emotionally intense moments and slow down anger's escalation. This guy argues that in the context of our relationships, sometimes we enter this thing he calls the crazy cycle, where each person involved in the dispute isn't having their needs met, and they're not communicating very clearly. I'm not getting what I want, and in the course of not getting what I want, I'm continuing to hurt you. And so anger indulges anger, indulges anger, indulges anger, which fuels more anger, and nothing productive happens. The crazy cycle. So what he counsels us to do is to break the crazy cycle, which is getting us absolutely nowhere, By locking on to a predetermined phrase that will slow us down, that will cause us to take a breather and actually work toward resolution. You say, what kind of predetermined phrase are you talking about? And this is where the cheesy be aggressive comes back in to serve us. I didn't have you just chant the cheese for no reason. I wouldn't do that to you. I think this is actually a helpful tool that you could use. In the course of being really frustrated, really angry, we need to lock onto something that we can say that will break us out of that moment of emotional intensity and stop anger's escalation. So in the middle of some kind of argument or frustrating scenario, you think to yourself, I need to be aggressive, be, be aggressive. And the minute you say that out loud, you look like a goofball. And so you laugh at yourself, that person laughs at you. This is ridiculous. You take a break, it inserts just enough time to take a breather, I even heard of one person who does this very kind of thing, tries to incorporate something to stop it, to break us out. They use uh, British accents. Because in the middle of an argument, when you change to a British accent, there's no way you're not going to laugh at yourself. We just need to calm ourselves down to stop the ridiculousness and actually engage in a healthy way. If you're serious about rooting anger out of your life, get rid of it. If you're obedient to this scripture then this simple exercise might be enough when practiced regularly just to slow things down, to insert some distance, to get you to laugh at yourself, and to give you what you need to re-engage in the conversation. Are you willing to do whatever it takes to get rid of all anger by interrupting its escalation, or are you content to be sick with anger in your heart? Get rid of all anger. Three preventions. Be rash, be defensive, and be aggressive with anger. Here then, finally, is wrath's cure, which is grace. Number four, be gracious. Jesus told some really thorny, uncomfortable stories. And one story in particular, he talks a great deal about wrath's cure, being gracious through forgiveness. Now, listen to what Jesus has to say. He says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged, and they went and told their master everything that had happened. And the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And Jesus finishes the parable with this line in verse 35. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. That story makes me uncomfortable, and especially that last line. It posed an awkward question to me as I got done reading it. What if God was to use the same amount of grace that I extend to others with me? What if God was to use the same amount of grace that you extend to others with you? I'm sad to say for me, I would not be getting a whole lot of grace from God. Similar to the parable that we just looked at, Paul says that we should extend grace to people because we've been shown grace from God. He concludes chapter 4 of Ephesians with one final comment that we need to apply to the issue of anger. He says in verse 32, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. When Pastor Jim has preached on this verse in the past, he's noted that we should find an attitude and an action in this verse. We need the right attitude to tackle our wrath, and Paul says that it should be characterized by the attributes that God has shown toward us. God displays kindness and compassion to sinful people. That's us. And so we need to treat others as God has treated us. And so in the midst of a confrontation with your neighbor, or a conflict with your boss, or a miscommunication with your spouse. It helps to remind ourselves that we're sinful people whom God has been kind and compassionate towards. And when I do that, I'm much, much more prone to recognize that I'm a part of the problem in the course of that conflict. Because I'm just humbly recognizing God's been gracious to me, I'm an undeserving sinner. Our attitude of kindness and compassion prepares us for the action of forgiveness. Paul writes, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. As God forgave you in Christ, so forgive each other. Now this certainly isn't easy, but it is straightforward. If you've received forgiveness from God, how did God forgive you? He certainly didn't gloss over sin. He faced it head on. He confronted it at the cross. Then he extended grace to undeserving, sinful people. He canceled the debt. We need to treat others as God has treated us. And so in our angry moments, it's never wise to cover up or to ignore or to explain away offenses. Instead, we need to confront them head on in our own hearts and in the lives of other people, and then we need to cancel the debt. We need to extend grace to other people just as one undeserving sinner does so to another. And it's that action, it's that action that can free us from the poisoning effects of wrath in our hearts, in our lives. When my wife and I have some kind of argument, we work it through as best as we can. We do the crazy cycle thing, actually. We have our own little phrase. And we try to work it through. We get to the end, and we start to sort of get to the point of resolution, and then we get really specific about apologies for one another. And most often, over the course of many years, when, I've, when Rachel has apologized for something, I say, it's okay, and she stops me. Without fail, I'm a slow learner. For years, she stopped me and said, no, it's not okay. It was wrong. But do you forgive me? Because Rachel understands the, the power of forgiveness for our hearts. We need to be forgiven. We need to be to have that debt canceled. So much of our anger, our wrath, bubbles up underneath the surface when it could be relieved by an attitude of kindness and compassion and by the action of forgiveness. You know, to rid wrath from our lives we need to turn it in on itself we need to be rash we need to be defensive we need to be aggressive because if you are then you'll be in a position to be gracious now as we close this series i want to invite our worship leaders to come and to prepare us for worship in just a moment our hope in this entire series has been to take sin seriously to offer some space for self-examination and then to actually take the time to kill sin in our lives And if there's one big thing that I've learned in the course of this series, or relearned I should say, it's that sin is really deceitful. I'm guessing that for many of us, as we've gone through each of these sins, you've been surprised to find out that that sin wasn't what you thought it was, and in fact that sin is your sin. So in other words, this series has been an application of Hebrews 3.13, which says, Encourage one another daily so that you will not be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Sin is deceitful, and we need to continue to see it for what it is, call it what it is, and confess it. And so to help you to continue to do that, to not be hardened by sin's deceitfulness, I just want to make you aware of a tool. You'll see at the bottom of your weekly welcome a link. You just circle that link and maybe you'll remember to go back to it when you get home. But you could take that link, click on it. It's going to take you to a page. You can download a two-page document that we've adapted for Christ's community use so that we can have a tool, a self-examination tool, which will help us take one of these sins and its manifestations, ask some questions, and work it through in our hearts. So I encourage you in your confession, personally, daily, weekly, to take that sheet. Work that stuff through and continue to root sin out of your lives, the deadly sins in all of their manifestations.